It won't surprise you to hear that this morning I'm going to preach about sacred ground, because I believe that's all I ever preach about. However, there is a reason for doing that, which is that it's important. So one more time, Sacred Ground is a course that many of us have been on, at least 60 of us have been on, over the past year. It's been an exploration, it's been a journey. It's been a journey, at least in part, inside ourselves, and I'll come back to that later. But it's also been a journey through the history of our country, through our society, through the way we've grown and expanded and what's that, what that's meant for all citizens, and indeed for non-citizens. And so much of that, in a way, seems like history. We've read about it, we've watched videos, we've talked about it amongst ourselves, but it has been mostly about the past. In recent sessions, we've come closer to the future. But this last time, this session, which is just closing now, which is the 10th, has brought it pretty much up to date. And one part of that was an absolutely searing documentary. It was called Dawnland. And what it was about was a, it was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up in 2012 in Maine by the state of Maine and the Wabanaki people. And the purpose of this Truth and Reconciliation was to get to the bottom of what had happened with the adoption of Native American children from, 19, from the late 1970s onwards. Not ancient history, modern history, up to pretty much the present day. And what they discovered was story after story. There were 150 individual testimonies. Stories of pain, of hurt, of being ripped away from families of a society, a society, which judged Indian families to be incapable of looking after their own children, judged on a different standard. Over five times as many Native American children were taken into care in Maine, and the numbers are higher in other states, some other states, taken into care, and the vast majority of those young people were placed with white families. This is pretty much today. And that brought home that the history that we've learned is actually not a history. It's a continuum, in a sense. A continuum that we're still on. And to bring this even more up to date, yesterday evening, Rob and I and a few others of you had the privilege of being present at a memorial, a rally, a welcome, a meeting, whatever it was, right outside on Black Lives Matter Plaza for John Lewis. I'm not going to get into the politics of this. But what I will say is that John Lewis, like Sacred Ground, like so many of us, was on a journey. John Lewis's life was a journey. Obviously, there was a physical element to it. There were many physical elements to it. There was a journey across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama. There was that journey in Selma, the journey to Montgomery. So much of John Lewis's life was a journey. But it wasn't a journey in the sense of from one point of time to another, but with an objective in mind. And what John Lewis's essential journey was about, what his end mission was about, was about building the beloved community. Building the beloved community. This was a phrase which Martin Luther King had only slightly earlier popularized. And it's a phrase now which the Episcopal Church, through Michael Curry, through Bishop Michael Curry, 
has taken upon itself. And in fact, building beloved community is what ties sacred ground together. Because sacred ground is there to help move us towards building beloved community. That's what John Lewis did. And at the end of this memorial, there were Congress people, there were senators, legislators from Texas, there was everybody. But at the end, what they did was they processed down from one block up to in front of St. John's, and they presented us, us, with a wreath. And what they said was, this was to St. John's, in honor of the continued spirit of John Lewis to build the beloved community, and consistent with your church's work to build the beloved community. I will be honest with you. I do not think that this is an accolade that we have yet fully earned. However, it is an amazing challenge and a wonderful opportunity. And one that I believe we will take up. And how do we do that? Well, I want to come back to this idea again of truth and reconciliation, because I think truth and reconciliation is at the heart of sacred ground and is at the heart of building beloved community. They may sound different. They may sound easy, truth on the one hand, reconciliation on the other. What do those words mean? To tie them together, I want to bring in one other thing, which is to describe the overall journey as a journey of repentance. But we need to pause on repentance. Repentance is one of those incredibly heavy words which sort of lands on you, almost stifles you. It carries with it associations of guilt, of penitence, of being on your knees, of sin, of contrition, all of those words which generally make us feel bad. But repentance actually is not about those. It can have those elements in it. Feeling sad, saying sorry, that can be part of it, but it isn't at the heart of it. I will freely admit that I should stay very well away from Latin and Greek. I was at school where we had to do it. I was the worst person ever. I mean, everybody had to do it except me after I proved that I couldn't do it. But nevertheless, the Bible was written in Greek. The New, much, much of the New Testament was written in Greek. And the word which is used in the New Testament is metanoia, a Greek word. It gets translated invariably as repentance. So we hear about John the Baptist saying that he's giving a baptism of repentance. We hear Jesus at the beginning of his ministry saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. But that doesn't mean down on your knees and flagellate yourself. It means something different, because what metanoia really means is to turn around. It's to experience a change, an inward change, a conversion, something which changes our spirit, something which spins us around and sets us off in the other direction. And that is what a journey of repentance is about. A journey of repentance is not crawling on our knees, trying to seek forgiveness. A journey of repentance is about reorienting our soul, reorienting it towards God, 
reorienting towards God, God wants, and reorientating it, reorienting it towards our fellow human beings, to those who are in need. This again is about how do we love both our neighbor and ourselves, and in so doing, love and honor God. Okay, so let me talk about those two elements. Let me talk first about truth and about what we discovered in sacred ground. And part of this is inward, okay? This is about going into ourselves and discovering the truth which is there. Part of this is truth that we actually did not know. And part of it, to be honest, is truth that we have suppressed. The truth that we didn't know, at least us white folks, is we can say, in a sense with a clear conscience, we are not racist. We do not think about race. But the reason why we don't think about race is because society is set up for us. And therefore, we don't have to think about race. Whereas if you are black or brown or any other person of color, society is not set up for you. And that has become very clear as we work our way through the readings, as we look at that. The truth that we see before us, and it appears to me to be incontrovertible, as you look at what happened before the revolution, as you look at what happened before the Civil War, as you look at what happened after the Civil War, the story of the South is well enough known. The story of the prison system is less well known, of the economic status of incarceration, of what we've seen more recently in relation to mass incarceration, of African Americans in particular, of how the welfare system works, of how the property system works, how all of this works in a way which is set up essentially to favor us. But we don't see it that way because that's normative. That is part of the truth that we have discovered. That's perhaps things that we didn't know about the GI Bill, where it ended up that less than 5% of eligible African Americans could take advantage of the GI Bill. That's what we've learned about redlining. It's what we've learned about urban renewal in the 1960s, which tore cities, including some of the other parts of DC apart, not Northwest, to be very clear, um, but other parts of the city apart. Those are the things we've learned. Those are the, the facts on the ground, if you will. But we've also learned things about ourselves. Uh, and this is inevitable. We like to think the best of ourselves. We tell ourselves a narrative of our own life which makes sense to us and makes sense to us in a way which validates us. And thinking about the assumptions we make, I've made it on my own. I made the best of myself. They haven't. They can't have done it. Well, maybe. Or maybe that's an excuse we tell ourselves. So that inward journey has been a crucial part of it because it has brought us to this point where we realize that we have to turn around. It has brought us to this point of conversion, of a change in mind, a change in spirit. And that's really important. And that is the first part of this journey of repentance, of this journey of, sorry, Greek, metanoia. But there's a second part to it as well, which is the reconciliation part. And this, too, 
is not easy, okay? One of the most painful episodes in this movie, in this documentary, Dawnland, is when the Native Americans, the Wabanaki, say, we can't talk with all these white people in the room. Please just take them out, and then we can have a conversation. And they then pan to the white people, some of whom work for you know, the organization which had arranged this. And they're sad, and they're grumpy, and they don't understand, and they want to be part of it. That's not reconciliation, okay? Reconciliation is not saying, I'm sorry, and then gathering around the campfire to sing Kumbaya. That is not reconciliation, okay? Jesus says, in a phrase that we liberals tend to jump over sometimes, I come not to bring peace to the earth, I come with a sword, to set father against son, mother against daughter. Now he doesn't mean this literally, obviously, but what he does mean is the truth that I bring is hard if you are set in the ways of the world. Before you make that conversion, this truth is hard and it will set people against each other, it will set people against you. But the ultimate aim is not to bring division and leave. The ultimate aim is to work through that to something which looks like beloved community. That is what reconciliation looks like. Not reconciliation on our terms, particularly not our terms for those who have constructed a society where it's all about us. Reconciliation is understanding what we need to do to build beloved community. When Martin Luther King used that phrase, he had three things in mind. He talked about an end to racism, an end to poverty, and an end to war, which I'm going to translate as violence for these purposes. And so we have the opportunity now to think about that. Now, as far as racism is concerned, again, I'm not a great one, as you know, for um, the God who has a big book up there. Uh, far less the God who actually picks up scripture readings and assigns them to Sundays uh, for a providential purpose. Nevertheless, um, the reading from Ephesians is perfect for these circumstances. Because Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, he's talking to the Gentiles, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has done this in order that he might create in himself one new humanity in the place of two. What more could we ask for? What more could we ask for? That is what Jesus came to do. To bring us all together in one beloved community by ignoring the man-made divisions of race, and they are man-made, really man-made, to ignore those divisions. So that's part of it. And then as far as poverty is concerned, we also can help with that. In my last sermon, I talked about WIN, Washington Interfaith Network, and what we might do with them. Those conversations are growing, uh, and you'll hear more about those shortly. But there will be an opportunity, and again, not with us sort of 
turning up with a check in hand, not with us turning up with a bag of great ideas, but us turning up to help and to listen to people. Listen to people very different in most cases from ourselves. And to see how we can help them, how we can help them in this community, not a long way away, not a couple of states away, here in DC, where there are problems. That again is about building beloved community. We can do it. We can really do it if we put our minds to it. And there are other things we can do as well. We could do things with the groups who protest around us. Maybe we could do things with our endowment. Who knows? If we do, if we get to that point of metanoia where we turn around and start walking in the opposite direction towards God, towards our fellow human beings, what might we be able to achieve? Again, I want to make very clear, and this is really important, because this has, in a sense, become a divisive issue, a politically divisive issue. This is not about beating up on our country. This is not about beating up on one party over another. This is not about beating up individuals. It really truly isn't. This is about a journey that we could be on, a journey which is joyful because it brings us to a better place, a journey which is hopeful because we can do things with God, and a journey which brings us to something which is better, which brings us to that beloved community. There are two images that I want to leave you with. The first is uh, one from the Gospel reading. Uh, and again, this echoes a little what I was talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Because what Jesus says in that, or rather what the Gospeler says in that, they begged that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. And how wonderful it would be if we could be the fringe of that cloak in Washington, D.C., and we could put that cloak out there, wider, so that people could touch it. Not our cloak, not our goodness, not our power, but God's. If we could put that out there. And we can do that. Because, providential or not, we also got Psalm 23 today. What verse 3 says is, He revives my soul and guides me along right pathways for his name's sake. He will guide us in the right path. Now, some of you may know this in the King James Version. He restoreth my soul. But here's an interesting thing. If you look at the English Book of Common Prayer, going back to Cranmer and the Reformers of the 1540s and 50s, the translation there is slightly different. What that says is, he shall convert my soul. Not restore it, not revive it, but convert it. He shall convert my soul and bring me forth in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. May he do that for us also, all of us. Amen.